This episode contains graphic details about the 1994 Rwandan genocide. Please self-censor if you or someone listening is sensitive to graphic content. I can't think of any family that didn't lose anybody. If they didn't die of cholera, they were dying of pumps. And I'm thinking, these people, they just want a country. If they want a country, how about they take it and leave it alone? Leave us alone. And then two things broke my heart. One was the sight of babies crying on the road suckling dead mothers. If you have a child who is sick with cholera and you already have another one in the back and you're carrying a bundle, you can't carry the one who's dying. And they will just leave them to die. whole country just because they're people who want power in her book the lances were looking down Hadija Niran Sakuye writes about her hometown of Gassini she says this another hill came rushing in front of us hiding the metallic mat from our sight until the city lights at the bottom of the hill greeted our car There, across the road, was a whitewashed building bigger than anything I could remember. That was Jasenyi's hospital, at the city entrance. The road branched out at this point. The left fork would take a visitor to the city administrative quarters, the hotels, and to Goma, the closest city in the former Zaire. The right branch of the road, a mile or so away, led from the hospital to the shopping center, the market, and the trading area and my father's compound a little bit north of the market. When I was growing up, we used to sing songs about Jasenyi, the jewel of Rwanda. Mount Rabavo stood guard to protect the city. I thought that fitting. I'm Tiffany Jalki. This is In Their Own Voices, where we learn about refugees and put their stories in the heart of the data. On this episode, after we hear from Hadija, we'll talk to the legendary Paul Salman of PBS NewsHour about a town in New York where refugees have revitalized the economy. We'll then discuss the economic impact of refugees with Jennifer Hunt, former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor and former deputy assistant for microeconomic analysis at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Now, here's Hadija's story. Jasenyi, Rwanda is a lush subtropical town in the east of Africa. Its verdant mountains cradle the majestic Cerulean Lake Kivu, where small island hills rise out of the waters, which kiss the land with beaches and palm trees. Resorts now line these beaches and shores, offering relaxing, sweeping views. This landscape belies the horrors that were committed here in 1994, when the government and its militias fomented hate and began urging citizens to mistrust, then later to slaughter its own Tutsi people. Many Hutus were married to Tutsis, but still turned their neighbors into the militias that made rounds in their truck caravans of death, yielding machetes and marching entire families off to their deaths. 
The slaughter continued to worsen as it stretched over the course of 100 days. By the time the slaughter abated, almost one million citizens of Rwanda were dead, bodies strewn across roads, yards, and fields, and in homes where they had tried to hide in vain in the attic. But before the genocide, there was just Jasinyi for Hadija. And despite being a girl who had contracted polio at a young age, she was determined to learn English, attend school, and make her father and two mothers proud. Theirs was a blended Muslim family made up of both Tutsis and Hutus. And they were happy. And so I, I remember my mother's thinking. So I, I, I called them my, the two mothers because there was my birth mother and there was my father's second wife. And then my father's second wife was a Tutsi woman. But her and my mother would sing about the Tutsis being kicked out of power as if it was nothing. But I, I, afterwards, when I got to think about it, I thought maybe it was just too painful for them to dwell on the very painful thing and they wanted to make a joke of it. I never knew because I never got to ask them questions. Did your stepmom not um, relate to the Tutsis or wanted to be not identified with them? See, I never knew. You didn't know. And at the time, the way things were, um, if you had a, a Hutu husband, he could get you an ID that says you're a Hutu, even though, you know, you're a Tutsi. And so they were always made, made fun of that. What was so different between Hutus and Tutsis anyway? In the joking vernacular of the people, they will tell you it's true that they are very beautiful. They tend to be physically very beautiful. Um, they drink a lot of milk because they are used to be herders. Um, and then they will tell you that they are lazy. Um, and then the flip side would be that the Tutsi would think about the Hutu as people who don't really think much, that they are, um, they are too trusting, um, they are hardworking, and if somebody says, it means I'm not your father's servant. That's what the translation was. So they were considered barbaric, too trusting, and don't think much. They, they're not very critical of the situation. They just take the things at face value. The Rwandan Revolution had laid the groundwork for future conflict, when in 1959, ethnic violence broke out between the Hutu and the Tutsi, which resulted in Rwanda moving from Belgian colonial rule with a Tutsi monarchy to an independent republic with a large Hutu majority. Tutsi, who had fled the country, simmered for decades over the ouster from their own native land. The, but so the, the Belgians kind of felt like they kind of sabotaging the process, I would say. Um, but this is me thinking out afterwards, sabotaging the process in the sense that they kind of uh, threw in the idea that you want us to leave because you think we have been oppressing you, and yet you have been oppressing another group that, uh, that comprises 85% of the population, and you've been doing that for 500 years. It was in this hotbed of political revolution that Hadija grew up. Africa is waking up. By the time I could listen to the radio and hear people talk, I, I understood that there were groups in my country and that they were Tutsis, and my father was married to one, and um, we had neighbors who had moved from the, um, from the rural area and had moved to Gisenyi, the northeast in the city where I, where I grew up. 
Hadija thought things were getting better, but then Tutsis began returning to Rwanda. It, but uh, it was kind of uh, an awakening, and I thought, hmm, the, the world is uh, opening up to be more accepting. Rwandans are outside there, and they appreciate how beautiful our country is. And I thought it was a good thing. What was hidden behind that was these people were building up a momentum for the time when they're actually going to be coming back. And then there was a flood of um, Tutsi, Tutsi refugees flooding into Rwanda because the, in, in Uganda they had, uh, they, they had a president, the one before Museveni, his name was, was Obote, and Obote was kicking Rwandans out of Uganda because he, he was afraid that the Rwandans were kind of taking over power in Uganda. Rwanda at the time saying that Rwanda was too small to accommodate those Tutsis coming back, that they should set resettlement back. And I was thinking to myself, that's a terrible mistake. I wasn't thinking in terms of these Tutsis are going to take over. I was thinking in terms of how dare you refuse people to come back to their country. You welcome them back. Yeah. You welcome them back and you figure out how to all of you live together, but you cannot really, in all consciousness, to say to people, you can't go back to your country. That's their country, too. That's their country, too. Hadija knew turning away Tutsis was a terrible idea, but she still held out optimism, even as things began to fracture between the regular people. I never thought that people would just literally turn against each other, neighbors against neighbors, or even if they were like the people who came to my house, they didn't know who we were. They have been seen by other people. That other people would convince another group of people to go attack people, to literally kill children and women. And I thought that, that's a curse. That, I mean, that's, that's a terrible thing to do. Did you- I knew it took three categories of people. Mm-hmm. I knew about very young people, my student from my school, who stood up against the tyranny, mm-hmm. who risked their lives. People died protecting other people or speaking the same way I'm speaking. So I know that category. Another, I know another category of people who were, they were intelligent people, educated people, who were so angry about the Tutsi, and he would saying things like, you can't trust them. Hadija, you're very naive. Those are snakes. You, if you protect them today, they're going to turn, turn against you tomorrow. And I was thinking, this can't be happening. And I was just like, you're an intelligent person. And some of them won't even be married to Tutsi women. Then there were still whole languages like that, you know, that kind of discourse about test snakes, you can't trust them. They'll turn against you. If you don't kill them, you know they're all contributing and all of them are going And I'm just like, we're not getting all this. And I, I was actually, I said to people, I said, I don't think the power of the Tutsi is inside this country. It's outside. They have the support of whatever they're getting there. They got the arms, they got whatever was supporting them, but it's not the local people. It turns out that they were true, but the, 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 the solution wasn't again. I mean, I said to people, I said, can you imagine you instigating violence against a woman, a child, somebody who hasn't even spoken to you? What does that do to your conscience? How does that make you feel? I remember saying to a young man, uh, my niece is here, she's in the room, her mother is a Tutsi. Mm-hmm. My brother was married to her mother, who was in school in Medina at the time. 
And this young man comes, and all with the military fatigue and guns, and he says, um, he's asking us where my sister-in-law is. I looked at him and I said, you went to school with my brother. If you really believe in brotherhood, Will you kill my brother's wife? I said, she's not here. Oh, I was lying. I said, she's not here, but even if she were, won't you protect her? You're a brother. But no, there are those people who were completely mad, and then there was a mob. Mm. And the mob were killed for a yes and for a no. These were, they have turned into monsters. At first, Hadija believes that her family is not a target. I was meant that they would be able to round them. And I was a forever optimist who thought, they're not going to round us. We didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> Soon, though, she finds out differently when she runs into a neighbor. We visit and then she tells me that so-and-so had died and so-and-so have been killed. And I said, freaking out. And then she, and, and I was about to leave and she says, um, hey, uh, my son was coming from the store and, and, I, and I said, yeah. And she, oh, she says, oh, maybe I shouldn't tell you all this. It's, it's just going to worry you unnecessarily. And I said, what is it? And she says, oh, it's nothing. I just, uh, and I said, why well, want to know? What, what is it? She says, well, your house is actually... On the list, I my just my eyes went. I felt like my I mean I, I couldn't breathe. I felt like somebody was suffocating me, saying that my house was on the list. We were doomed, especially that we were not allowed to go out. Then it means I mean my parents' house was just less than a mile away, but the minute she says our house was on the list, I knew we couldn't even make it. The Hutu militia had been putting up roadblocks. So there was no way for them to get even a mile down the road to Hadija's parents' house. I started sweating. I, I really freaked out. I literally freaked out this time. I knew we, that was the end of us. And I didn't even think they were going to look for only for my husband because I, I, from hearing the stories that they've been telling, all of us were doomed. Mm -hmm. She says, um, if I were you, I would suggest that not all of you stay in the, same, in the same place. I think I heard that, and I don't know if I heard that, and I didn't know what I was hearing, and I don't know. And I was just like, what does somebody do in this case? I, I, I mean, I... <laughs> Hadija's husband was a Tutsi, putting them on the short list. He had known it was going to be very, very bad, and apparently these people who are today in power had been warning the Tutsis in Rwanda. They had told them, we are coming back, but there is a price to pay. A lot of you are going to die. But I don't even think that they knew how barbaric it was going to be. I, I, I don't know what was in their mind, but if they really knew... Apparently, the state government of the United States has warned them. They have said, okay, you want to start in in Rwanda? Minimum people who are going to die, at least 100,000 people will die. They know. They can anticipate when they engage in a war what the ripple effect would be. Tribal tensions have always been known. They have known what has happened in the 50s. They have been seeing what happens in other places. They knew what has happened in Burundi, our neighboring country, in 70. Two, I believe, apparently they were anticipating to have at least 100,000 people killed. We ended up to, with close to a million, 
But if people really knew that was going to happen, God is going to make these people pay. We will return to hear how things turn out for Hadija, her husband, Gilbert, and the rest of her family. For now, let's hear from Paul Salmon, economic correspondent with PBS NewsHour, who weighs in on the economic benefits of refugees in Utica, New York. Paul explains that there are enterprising humans everywhere, but in the case of refugees, they are trapped in situations where the murderous side, rather than the enterprising side of humanity, has taken over. When we allow them the opportunity, we can all benefit. They're living in the equivalent of Sarajevo. They're living in a place where, you know, the the murderous, self-protective slash murderous side of, of humanity has taken over. Um, and those are the refugees, right? The people who have to leave, who have to seek refuge from the place that they are that's no longer habitable for them. Paul explains how in Utica, New York, the community was really ripe for some kind of revitalization. And surprisingly, refugees provided that respite. This was a dying community, like so many post-industrial communities uh, in America. Um, you know, everybody is going, by everybody I obviously exaggerate, but uh, so many people, particularly talented young people, uh, leave places like Utica, New York, and, and probably another thousand you could you could name uh, to go to the big city where there are more opportunities. And so, what do these communities do? What's their alternative to becoming a ghost town, basically, or closing up shop, or or you know, in a in a downward spiral where the young and enterprising leave, and then you have the costs of taking care of older people or the ones that remain because they can't leave. Uh, and that's the downward spiral. What's not to like if you're Utica, New York, right? It's <laughs> the perfect answer or the best answer you can think of. Paul explains why refugees and immigrants in general are considered a boon for the economy. One, the most important insight from economics is that it forces you to think about what the costs of any decision are and the benefits. Just like Utica in upstate New York is what's in it for us? What are the costs and benefits of bringing refugees here or allowing them to stay here? So what happened in Utica? Well, Somali refugees actually were resettled there. They had arrived from a Kenyan refugee camp about a decade ago. According to a New York Times article entitled A New Life for Refugees and the City They Adopted, published on August 10, 2014, these Somali refugees were able to revitalize the economy in Utica. The banks gave them loans and they were able to set up businesses and those small businesses started hiring. They renovated. They actually revitalized the downtown area. It was mostly by accident. And at first, people were resistant. But after a while, they actually were named the town that loves refugees. And they're not alone. Just a few other areas where refugees have made a positive economic impact, similar to the way they did in Utica, are areas like Fairfax, Virginia, Sacramento, California, 
DeKalb County, Georgia, King County, Washington, Dallas, Texas, Clarkston, Georgia, Decatur, Georgia, El Cajon, California, West Springfield, Massachusetts, Southfield, Michigan, Syracuse, New York, New Bern, North Carolina, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Glendale, California, Twin Falls, Idaho, Houston, Texas, St. Louis, Missouri, Louisville, Kentucky, Minnesota, Lewiston, Maine, and Cleveland, Ohio, just to name a few. And, you know, it was, a, it was an absolute net positive in terms of the revenues to the community. The story of what is called American exceptionalism. Jennifer Hunt is a professor of economics at Rutgers University. She was the chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor, then the deputy assistant secretary for microeconomic analysis at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. She received her Ph.D. in economics from Harvard in 1992 and her bachelor's in electrical engineering from MIT in 1987. She is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's also a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research in London. Suffice it to say, Jennifer is an expert economist. Here's what she had to say about refugees and the economic contribution they make. Let's talk first about the one that you asked me about, the, the, the Department of Health and Human Services study commissioned by the Trump administration and then suppressed, but uh, a draft version of which has been leaked and is online. So that looks at one aspect. It's the aspect I think that non-economists focus on, but uh, I'll go on later to say there's a, a couple of other important dimensions that economists look at. But this report looks in particular what's called the, the net fiscal contribution of the refugees. So do they pay more in taxes than they receive in in uh, either money or services from the government? And uh, I have been able to read that draft, and it's really an excellent report, actually, done using the, the best techniques and consulting, in fact, uh, the, the people who know best how to do this. And... Uh, it does find, in fact, that if you consider refugees who arrived in the U.S. over the 10 years from 2005 to 2014, that they made a net contribution to uh, the finances of the U.S. of about $2,000 per refugee. And uh, that's done extremely carefully. Uh, there's one a big caveat, which is it doesn't try to predict. So that's what they've done so far. Yeah. You might want to try to predict, all right, if just keep following them over time, what are they going to do in the next 20 or 30 years? Uh, they haven't tried to do that. And I think that was actually wise because one needs to make such assumptions about other things happening in the economy that I think it's virtually impossible. So I think actually the safest thing to do is what they did, just focus on what's happened until now. Jennifer helps explain why, from an economic perspective, Refugees are not always accepted by state and local governments. And she has a recommendation, too. We want to look at that because at least for refugees, uh, sorry, immigrants, generally, we find that the children of immigrants in the U.S. are particularly strong contributors to the finances of the U.S. The, the other aspect, though, that's very important to look at, uh, considering this report, uh, is that, and this is true for immigration generally, the federal government uh, has makes benefits a lot from immigration, 
And the reason is it doesn't pay this number one cost, which is the K through 12 education that's paid by state and local, but it has a more progressive income tax system so that it, it, gets, uh, it gets a lot of taxes back. Whereas the uh, state and local governments have pretty flat uh, taxation rates that's more relevant for the children actually, which weren't considered in the refugee uh, case, but, um, but they're the ones who pay in particular for the schools. And so I, I would recommend, and I'm not the first person to do this, that one way of getting more support for immigration would be for the federal government to give more support to the state and local governments uh, to, to even out the, the fiscal burden, or, or rather in this case, not the burden, the fiscal, the fiscal benefit, so that the federal government doesn't take all the goodies for itself, but shares it with the state and local governments. Let's return now to Hadija's story. When we left off, she and her husband had just found out they were on a list to be killed. They had just told us about uh, another colleague of ours who was also a friend who they had just killed and his body was lying on the street. And I was just like, I thought, maybe, maybe this is a nightmare I'm going to wake up. This is the nightmare I'm going to wake up. Because those this, this were our neighbors. These are people we walk with. We had seen Gaudios the day before. We had gone to somebody's, uh, it was around Easter. And he, there had been a celebration close by us and people were laughing and drinking and eating and music and all that. And I said, <laughs> and I thought, this is going to take a miracle. And I said, there has to be a God somewhere who's going to say stop. As Hadija tries to figure out what to do, Gilbert quietly slips out into the rain to turn himself in in order to spare his family. He is released due to an argument between the police and the militia. But now they must go into hiding. As they go on the run, here are a few recollections from Hadija on what it was like as they hid from the militia searching for them every day. I really freaked out. I literally freaked out this time I knew that was the end of us. And I didn't even think they were going to look for only for my husband because I, from hearing the stories that they've been telling, all of us were doomed. Uh-huh. They were outsiders. Knew, they knew they were Tutsis and their ID card said Tutsis, so they knew they were at risk. So there were a lot of people in my, my father's compound. So if there was a raid, everybody was going to die. He was helping them, hiding was, people. Yeah. So my father's like, the raid is going to be because they can't find your husband. And this is the the last place they're thinking they need to come check. And if they come and find him, nobody's going to survive. He says, now you make a choice. Your father, your brother's not here. I have his children and his wife. There are other people who are hiding here. There is your other mom who's here. Now it's up to you. Other one, he says, it's up to me. And I just say, you know, there is not such a thing like up to me. And I thought, you know what? He's right. Who am I? to ask that everybody be sacrificed so I can save my husband. Who am I to want to live a life if I am going to say, here, this is my husband, you can take him. How am I going to raise, raise my children knowing that I stood there when they took him to kill him? I said to my dad, I said, I understand. And I said, but I'm not gonna stay. He looks at me as if I had spoken another language he doesn't understand. What do you mean you're not going to stay? I said, we're all going. I didn't even want to make him choose. I didn't want to say, if he's going, we're all going. I said, 
When her dad realizes he could lose them all, he says they can all stay. But it wasn't easy on anyone, and the nights were the hardest. Some nights were so bad that he was just like, I don't know if we're going to make it through the night. Everyone. Every time they had found somebody, they were, they were randomly killing people, but every time they would find one of the people they were looking for, like the way they were looking for my husband. Then it was like they were on a festival. I mean, they were shouting, they were screaming, they were, um, you'll, you'll hear the gunshots. And, and then those who were able to go on the street, my father always would stand at the gate and listen and then come tell us what's happening. Then one day, things got even worse. And everybody went, my mother, my other siblings and everybody and I stayed behind with the people where I was. And I, I can't believe they just went to inaugurate the border as if nothing was happening. Then we get a visit from one of those hardliners who was known to be going, killing people left and right. So that Maui comes to the gate and he looks, he comes to me and he says, hello, sister. And I said hello to, her, to him too. And he says, how are you? I said, I'm fine. How are you? And he said, and where is your husband? And I said, well, they killed him. He was hiding in the house as she said this. He said, and you believe that they killed him? I said, yeah, they killed him. And then I said, do you want me? He said, you want, you want me to show you where he is? <laughs> my heart just leaped out of my He has gotten out of the attic. He was actually sitting on the on a, on a chair in the room. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I told him I wasn't interested in doing what he was. I told him I wasn't interested. And I said, well, if you know where he is, that's fine. <laughs> I'm not interested. He says, you want to know why? Do you want me to show you where he is? I said, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> well, I'm freaking out. I'm just, I've just been on my back. And uh, because I had tied, you know, you tie the, the clothes that are holding the baby. And it's, it just came undone. And I pretended I wanted to, uh, to redo it. And I, I stood and I was shaking like a leaf. After that, her father made Gilbert leave. He took him over to her other mother's house. Um, so we're sitting, we're sitting to, we're sitting, sitting down to eat. And I asked my father, and I said, "So how's Gilbert doing?" And he says, "Oh, um, I helped, I helped him over the wall, and I told him to be a man." <laughs> I felt like a jerk. I didn't even feel like I was a traitor. I didn't know what I was feeling like. So I'm sitting here eating. I slept in a bed. You sent my husband, and it has rained that night. You sent my husband over a wall and told him to be a man. How do you, how do you, how you are a man when you're being hunted down like a wild animal? Mm-hmm. What kind of man... I thought my heart was my heart was going to stop. So where is Gilbert? For a few days, Hadida didn't know where he was, or if he was even alive or dead. But then, 
a neighbor calls her over. And he says, hey, your husband is here. And uh, I said, he's here? He said, yes. He said, I said, well, yeah, I want to take him across the border. He says, that would be a good thing, but it's already daylight. See all the people who are going by? And I said, even if they don't intercept him, they're going to follow him. I said, it would be a good thing, but maybe he would wait until tomorrow. And I'm just like, no, 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 we're not waiting until tomorrow. Maybe he won't be alive tomorrow. And by the time we're talking, Yahaya pulls up because he was driving a minivan and he comes and he says, so where is he? We need to get going. It's getting in the middle. The people, the killers would kill people, loot their houses, and then they would go gamble and they go drink in the middle of the night. So during the day, they actually would uh, go divide their loot or whatever they were doing. So he said, actually, this is a very good time. By 7, it's going to be a little too late, mm -hmm. but this is a good time. So he gets him in the van, the minivan, he hides him in the back, and they, they just go. And now I'm shaking again. The border to Zaire was only a few miles away, but everywhere there were roadblocks. So I sat there, and it has rained the whole night. I'm sitting on a cold cement, <laughs> on concrete, with my baby on the back, and I'm shaking, and I'm shivering, and I'm shaking. I don't know how long I stayed there, but by the time I got up, I saw the minivan speeding up again over the road. And I'm thinking, oh, if that's Yahya, that means they either stopped him and they took my husband and they killed him or what happened or did he dump him somewhere or I didn't know what to think but, but I, the whatever was going in my mind wasn't that he had made it across the border. Gilbert did make it across that border and Hadija and Jasmine were next. So we were all excited that at least we were going to go to flee in a truck. Well guess what? Somebody sabotaged the, the truck apparently and put in, I don't know what kind of chemical product they put in, it lost its brake. Mm -hmm. So all packed in the, car, in, the, in the truck, and the truck has lost its brake. So it's just going free. Couldn't stop. And there's my mother, and there's me, and there's my and her little sister, mm -hmm. and my little girls. And I remember my mother shouting, I'm going to die with the children. I'm going to die with the children. <laughs> And I'm saying, so I opened the, the, the window of the truck and I'm saying to whoever can listen to me, I said, we lost a break, please get out of the way. We lost a break, please get out of the way. <laughs> At some point, somebody actually shoot the, the tires, the, the, the tires of the, of the truck and the truck stopped. So we got out and we crossed the border on foot. Hadija and Jasmine made it across the border safely, but their hell wasn't over. Cholera broke out in the refugee camps, and no one wanted the refugees there after that. About a month after fleeing to Zaire, the border to Rwanda was reopened, and they went home. The images at the beginning of this episode were all from the journey home. But the scars remain to this day. So every time I opened the TV or the newspaper and I looked at those Syrians and I look at those Iraqis fleeing, it just takes me back. I see myself there. And you see yourself there and you see yourself with children. 
And you're just thinking, people are doing this to other people. And you can't think of when it will end. Tiffany, this country is very blessed. But from the blessing we have to end up with what we, we experienced, there's one step. One misstep. Arrogance. People are arrogant. People are selfish. Mm -hmm. They don't care about the sacrifices. That's what we do to each other. And that's terrible. I can't help but wonder, do we have to be terrible? I don't think so. Join us next episode when we discuss the history of U.S. immigration and the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. This program is made possible by the generous support of Southern Methodist University's Embry Human Rights Program. I'm your host, Tiffany Jelke. This podcast could not be made possible without the tireless efforts of Allison Plake, audio production intern, and Michelle Laura, production assistant. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash in their own voices. Thank you for joining us.